Chapters 15 and 16 of A House of Gentlefolk by Ivan Turgenev, translated by Constance Garnett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 15 And so his offer was accepted, but on certain conditions. In the first place, Lavretsky was at once to leave the university. Who would be married to a student? And what a strange idea, too! How could a landowner, a rich man, at twenty-six, take lessons and be at school? Secondly, Varvara Pavlovna took upon herself the labor of ordering and purchasing her trousseau and even choosing her present from the bridegroom. She had much practical sense, a great deal of taste, and a very great love of comfort, together with a great faculty for obtaining it for herself. Lavretsky was especially struck by this faculty when, immediately after their wedding, he travelled alone with his wife in the comfortable carriage bought by her to Lavriki. How carefully everything with which he was surrounded had been thought of, devised, and provided beforehand by Varvara Pavlovna. What charming knick-knacks appeared from various snug corners, what fascinating toilet-cases and coffee-pots, and how delightfully Varvara Pavlovna herself made the coffee in the morning. Lavretsky, however, was not at that time disposed to be observant. He was blissful, drunk with happiness. He gave himself up to it like a child. Indeed, he was as innocent as a child, this young Hercules. Not in vain was the whole personality of his young wife breathing with fascination. Not in vain was her promise to the senses of a mysterious luxury of untold bliss. Her fulfillment was richer than her promise. When she reached Lavriki in the very height of the summer, she found the house dark and dirty, the servants absurd and old-fashioned, but she did not think it necessary even to hint at this to her husband. If she had proposed to establish herself at Lavriki, she would have changed everything in it, beginning, of course, with the house. But the idea of staying in that out-of-the-way corner of the steps never entered her head for an instant. She lived as in a tent, good-temperedly, putting up with all its inconveniences and indulgently making merry over them. Marfa Timofyevna came to pay a visit to her former charge. Varvara Pavlovna liked her very much, but she did not like Varvara Pavlovna. The new mistress did not get on with Glafira Petrovna either. She would have left her in peace, but old Korobyan wanted to have a hand in the management of his son-in-law's affairs to superintend the property of such a near relative he said was not beneath the dignity of even a general one must add that pavel petrovitch would not have been above managing the property even of a total stranger varvara pavlovna conducted her attack very skilfully without taking any step in advance apparently completely absorbed in the bliss of the honeymoon in the peaceful life of the country, in music and reading, she gradually worked Glafira up to such a point 
that she rushed one morning like one possessed into lavretsky's study and throwing a bunch of keys on the table she declared that she was not equal to undertaking the management any longer and did not want to stop in the place lavretsky having been suitably prepared beforehand at once agreed to her departure this glafira petrovna had not anticipated very well she said and her face darkened i see that i am not wanted here i know who is driving me out of the home of my fathers only you mark my words nephew you will never make a home anywhere you will come to be a wanderer forever this is my last word to you the same day she went away to her own little property and in a week general korobyin was there and with a pleasant melancholy in his looks and movements he took the superintendence of the whole property into his hands in the month of september varvara pavlovna carried her husband off to petersburg she passed two winters in petersburg for the summer she went to stay at tsarskoe selo in a splendid light artistically furnished flat they made many acquaintances among the middle and even higher ranks of society went out and entertained a great deal and gave the most charming dances and musical evenings varvara pavlovna attracted guests as a fire attracts moths fyodor ivanitch did not altogether like such a frivolous life his wife advised him to take some other office under government but from old association with his father and also through his own ideas he was unwilling to enter government service still he remained in petersburg for varvara pavlovna's pleasure he soon discovered however that no one hindered him from being alone that it was not for nothing that he had the quietest and most comfortable study in all petersburg that his tender wife was even ready to aid him to be alone and from that time forth all went well he again applied himself to his own as he considered unfinished education he began again to read and even began to learn english it was a strange sight to see his powerful broad-shouldered figure forever bent over his writing-table his full-bearded ruddy face half buried in the pages of a dictionary or notebook every morning he set to work then had a capital dinner varvara pavlovna was unrivalled as a housekeeper and in the evenings he entered an enchanted world of light and perfume peopled by gay young faces and the centre of this world was also the careful housekeeper his wife she rejoiced his heart by the birth of a son but the poor child did not live long it died in the spring and in the summer by the advice of the doctors lavretsky took his wife abroad to a watering place distraction was essential for her after such a trouble and her health too required a warm climate the summer and autumn they spent in germany and switzerland and for the winter as one would naturally expect they went to paris in paris varvara pavlovna bloomed like a rose and was able to make herself a little nest as quickly and cleverly as in petersburg she found very pretty apartments in one of the quiet but fashionable streets in paris 
she embroidered her husband such a dressing-gown as he had never worn before, engaged a coquettish waiting-maid, an excellent cook, and a smart footman, procured a fascinating carriage and an exquisite piano. Before a week had passed, she crossed the street, wore her shawl, opened her parasol, and put on her gloves in a manner equal to the most true-born Parisian. And she soon drew round herself acquaintances. At first only Russians visited her, afterwards Frenchmen too, very agreeable, polite, and unmarried, with excellent manners and well-sounding names. They all talked a great deal, and very fast, bowed easily, grimaced agreeably, their white teeth flashed under their rosy lips, and how they could smile! All of them brought their friends, and la belle Madame de Levretsky was soon known from Chaussée d'Antin to Rue de Lille. In those days it was in 1836, there had not yet arisen the tribe of journalists and reporters who now swarm on all sides like ants in an anthill. But even then there was seen in Varvara Pavlovna's salon a certain Monsieur Jules, a gentleman of unprepossessing exterior, with a scandalous reputation, insolent and mean like all duelists and men who have been beaten. Varvara Pavlovna felt a great aversion to this Monsieur Jules, but she received him because he wrote for various journals and was incessantly mentioning her calling her at one time madame de elski at another madame de cette grande dame russe si distinguée qui demeure rue des Pus, and telling all the word that is some hundreds of readers who had nothing to do with madame de elski how charming and delightful this lady was a true frenchwoman in intelligence une vraie française par l'esprit frenchmen have no higher praise than this what an extraordinary musician she was and how marvellously she waltzed varvara pavlovna did in fact waltz so that she drew all her hearts to the hem of her light flying skirts in a word he spread her fame through the world and whatever one may say that is pleasant mademoiselle mar had already left the stage and mademoiselle rachel had not yet made her appearance nevertheless varvara pavlovna was assiduous in visiting the theatres she went into raptures over italian music yawned decorously at the comédie française and wept at the acting of madame d'orval in some ultra-romantic melodrama and the great thing Liszt played twice in her salon and was so kind, so simple, it was charming. In such agreeable sensations was spent the winter, at the end of which Varvara Pavlovna was even presented at court. Fyodor Ivanitch, for his part, was not bored, though his life at times weighed rather heavily on him, because it was empty. He read the papers, listened to the lectures, at the Sorbonne and the Collège de Francais, followed the debates in the chambers, and set to work on a translation of a well-known scientific treatise on irrigation. 
i'm not wasting my time he thought it is all of use but next winter i must without fail return to russia and set to work it is difficult to say whether he had any clear idea of precisely what this work would consist of and there is no telling whether he would have succeeded in going to russia in the winter in the meantime he was going with his wife to baden an unexpected incident broke up all his plans chapter sixteen happening to go one day in varvara pavlovna's absence into her boudoir lavretsky saw on the floor a carefully folded little paper he mechanically picked it up unfolded it and read the following note written in french sweet angel betsy i never can make up my mind to call you bob or varvara i waited in vain for you at the corner of the boulevard come to our little room at half-past one to-morrow your stout good-natured husband ton gros bonhomme de marie is usually buried in his books at that time we will sing once more the song of your poet pushkin the Baudre poet pushkin that you taught me old husband cruel husband a thousand kisses on your little hands and feet i await you ernest lavretsky did not at once understand what he had read he read it a second time and his head began to swim the ground began to sway under his feet like the deck of a ship in a rolling sea he began to cry out and gasp and weep all at the same instant he was utterly overwhelmed he had so blindly believed in his wife the possibility of deception of treason had never presented itself to his mind this ernest his wife's lover was a fair-haired pretty boy of three-and-twenty with a little turned-up nose and refined little moustaches almost the most insignificant of all her acquaintances a few minutes passed half an hour passed lavretsky still stood crushing the fatal note in his hands and gazing senselessly at the floor across a kind of tempest of darkness pale shapes hovered about him his heart was numb with anguish he seemed to be falling falling and a bottomless abyss was opening at his feet a familiar light rustle of a silk dress roused him from his numbness varvara pavlovna in her hat and shawl was returning in haste from her walk lavretsky trembled all over and rushed away he felt that at that instant he was capable of tearing her to pieces beating her to death as a peasant might do strangling her with his own hands varvara pavlovna in amazement tried to stop him he could only whisper betsy and ran out of the house lavretsky took a cab and ordered the man to drive him out of the town all the rest of the day and the whole night he wandered about constantly stopping short and wringing his hands at one moment he was mad at the next he was ready to laugh was even merry after a fashion by the morning he grew calm through exhaustion and went into a wretched tavern in the outskirts 
asked for a room and sat down on a chair before the window. He was overtaken by a fit of convulsive yawning. He could scarcely stand upright, his whole body was worn out, and he did not even feel fatigue. Though fatigue began to do its work, he sat and gazed and comprehended nothing. He did not understand what had happened to him, why he found himself alone, with his limbs stiff, with a taste of bitterness in his mouth, with a load on his heart, in an empty, unfamiliar room. He did not understand what had impelled her, his Varya, to give herself to this Frenchman, and how, knowing herself unfaithful, she could go on being just as calm, just as affectionate, as confidential with him as before. I cannot understand it, his parched lips whispered. Who can guarantee now that even in Petersburg... And he did not finish the question and yawned again, shivering and shaking all over. Memories, bright and gloomy, fretted him alike. Suddenly it crossed his mind how some days before she had sat down to the piano and sung before him and Ernest the song, Old Husband, Cruel Husband. He recalled the expression of her face, the strange light in her eyes, and the color on her cheeks. And he got up from his seat. He would have liked to go to them, to tell them, You were wrong to play your tricks on me. My great-grandfather used to hang the peasants by their ribs, and my grandfather was himself a peasant. And to kill them both. Then all at once it seemed to him as if all that was happening was a dream, scarcely even a dream, but some kind of foolish joke, that he needed only shake himself and look round. He looked round, and like a hawk clutching its captured prey, anguish gnawed deeper and deeper into his heart. To complete it all, Lavretsky had been hoping in a few months to be a father. The past, the future, his whole life was poisoned. He went back at last to Paris, stopped at an hotel, and sent Monsieur Ernest's note to Varvara Pavlovna with the following letter. The enclosed scrap of paper will explain everything to you. Let me tell you, by the way, that I was surprised at you. You who are always so careful to leave such valuable papers lying about? Paul Lavretsky had spent hours preparing and gloating over this phrase. I cannot see you again. I imagine that you too would hardly desire an interview with me. I am assigning you 15,000 francs a year. I cannot give more. Send your address to the office of the estate, do what you please, live where you please, I wish you happiness. No answer is needed. Lavretsky wrote to his wife that he needed no answer, but he waited. He thirsted for a reply, for an explanation of this incredible, inconceivable thing. Varvara Pavlovna wrote him the same day a long letter in French. It put the finishing touch. His last doubts vanished, and he began to feel ashamed 
that he had still had any doubt left. Varvara Pavlovna did not attempt to defend herself. Her only desire was to see him. She besought him not to condemn her irrevocably. The letter was cold and constrained, though here and there traces of tears were visible. Lavretsky smiled bitterly and sent word by the messenger that it was all right. Three days later he was no longer in Paris. But he did not go to Russia, but to Italy. He did not know himself why he fixed upon Italy. He did not really care where he went, so long as it was not home. He sent instructions to his steward on the subject of his wife's allowance, and at the same time told him to take all control of his property out of General Korobyan's hands at once, without waiting for him to draw up an account and to make arrangements for His Excellency's departure from Lavriki. He could picture vividly the confusion, the vain airs of self-importance of the dispossessed general, and in the midst of all his sorrow he felt a kind of spiteful satisfaction. At the same time he asked Glafira Petrovna by letter to return to Lavriki and drew up a deed authorizing her to take possession. Glafira Petrovna did not return to Lavriki and printed in the newspapers that the deed was cancelled, which was perfectly unnecessary on her part. Lavretsky kept out of sight in a small Italian town, but for a long time he could not help following his wife's movements. From the newspapers he learned that she had gone from Paris to Baden, as she had arranged. Her name soon appeared in an article written by the same Monsieur Jules. In this article there was a kind of sympathetic condolence apparent under the habitual playfulness. There was a deep sense of disgust in the soul of Fyodor Ivanitch as he read this article. Afterwards he learned that a daughter had been born to him. Two months later he received a notification from his steward that Varvara Pavlovna had asked for the first quarter's allowance. Then worse and worse rumors began to reach him. At last a tragic comic story was reported with acclamations in all the papers. His wife played an unenviable part in it. It was the finishing stroke. Varvara Pavlovna had become a notoriety. Lavretsky ceased to follow her movements, but he could not quickly gain mastery over himself. Sometimes he was overcome by such a longing for his wife that he would have given up everything, he thought, even, perhaps, could have forgiven her only to hear her caressing voice again, to feel again her hand in his. Time, however, did not pass in vain. He was not born to be a victim. His healthy nature reasserted its rights. Much became clear to him. Even the blow that had fallen on him no longer seemed to him to have been quite unforeseen. He understood his wife. We can only fully understand those who are near to us when we are separated from them. He could take up his interests, could work again, though with nothing like his former zeal. Skepticism, 
half formed already by the experiences of his life and by his education took complete possession of his heart he became indifferent to everything four years passed by and he felt himself strong enough to return to his country to meet his own people without stopping at petersburg or at moscow he came to the town of o where we parted from him and whither we will now ask the indulgent reader to return with us end of chapters 15 and 16